imagine a scenario where firms cut hourly wages by five cents or 10 cents and ask yourself the question, would everyone who works at that company leave? Hi, I'm Clémentine Vanifonter. I'm an assistant professor of economics at the University of Toronto, and this is Inequality Talks. Elora de Renoncourt is an assistant professor of economics at Princeton University and the faculty director of the Program for Research on Inequality at Princeton Economics. Her research interests are in labor economics, economic history, and the study of inequality. In particular, she has studied the northern backlash against the Great Migration and the role of federal minimum wage policy in racial earnings convergence during the civil rights era that we talked about in a previous episode. She joined me to talk about her recent work with Clemens Nolke, David Weil, and Blady Tasca. They asked the following question. When a large firm like Amazon decides to increase its minimum wage, what happens to other workers not employed at Amazon? So I'm really thrilled to have you, Elora, on the podcast. It's been so long. Thank you so much for being here today with me. Thanks so much for having me. We know that part of the increase in inequality that has been extensively documented in the United States comes from the stagnation of the growth of low wages. I wanted to ask you what made you think about looking specifically at wage setting policies of large firms and why you think it matters for our understanding of the increase in inequality. Absolutely. Well, as you mentioned, we are in a context where we've had declining labor market institutions in the United States for several decades. So if you consider something like the federal minimum wage, it's been $7.25 for over a decade now. It's been declining in real terms. Union density is at a historic low. Less than 7% of private sector workers are unionized. And then you have phenomena like outsourcing or the rise of the gig economy that's eroded the bite of labor market institutions for a lot of workers. It's disrupted the very definition of who a worker is or who's employed and therefore who's eligible for standard labor market protections. So it's in this context that my co-authors and I became interested in what can move wage setting for low-wage workers, what can help them catch up in a period where wages at the bottom have barely grown while wages at the top have grown extraordinarily. So could you tell us how these voluntary minimum wage changes emerge? Like what are the companies that implemented them and how it happened? So I always like to begin this story by coming back to actually what worker advocates have been doing in advocating for better wages for low-wage workers. So I described the context a little bit in terms of falling real federal minimum wage and declining labor market institutions. And it's in that context that this campaign got started. It was spearheaded by the Service Employees International Union. And the campaign is known as the Fight for 15 campaign. And this group with unions and worker advocates from a variety of different sectors, they called for increases in minimum wages at the federal, state, and local level. But another arm of their strategy was to target large companies. And they would do this through releasing corporate research, through rallies, direct actions, even strikes, basically saying, look, you guys are a huge, highly profitable 
company, you can afford to pay your workers more. And if you change, if you increase your wages, you'll inspire others to do the same. So in other words, they used this rhetoric of these large companies can act as standard bearers in the low-wage labor market. Well, a few years after this campaign launched, it was launched in 2012, a number of large retailers actually began announcing company-wide minimum wages. The firms that we focus on specifically in our study are Walmart, Amazon, Target, Costco, and CVS. And these are all companies that announced either a first company-wide minimum wage or an increase in their company-wide minimum wage between 2015 and 2019. And together, these retailers, they employ about 2% or more of the U.S. workforce. So that's comparable, if not greater than the size of, say, the federal government's workforce. So when these minimum wage changes were announced, considering what we have in the economist toolbox, what were the predicted effect in a way? And what could we have expected? And what does the standard theory predict? Well, in a perfectly competitive labor market, our standard theory tells us that firms should be wage takers and that the wage should be determined by labor supply and labor demand and will be equal to workers' marginal productivity. But in this context, you know, no firm would ever have incentive to deviate from this quote-unquote market wage because if they did so, their profits would not cover their costs. And similarly, even if one firm for whatever reason did deviate, other firms in the market wouldn't have any incentive to follow for exactly the same reason. Now, more recently, the research on labor markets suggests that, in fact, we don't live in a world of perfectly competitive labor markets. Instead, firms have actually quite a bit of discretion in setting wages. And perhaps the easiest way to understand this is to just imagine a scenario where firms cut hourly wages by five cents or 10 cents or 50 cents and ask yourself the question, would everyone who works at that company leave? That's what standard theory would predict. But we know from the research and just living in the world that the answer is no. So that's the essence of monopsony power or firm wage setting power, which can come from many different sources, such as the fact that it actually takes a really long time to find a new job, or workers may prefer a job for reasons other than the wage, like how long their commute time is, or just the availability of plausible alternative jobs for a given worker based on their gender, race, education, experience, etc. The end result is the same. Wages are not, in fact, equal to marginal product. Instead, firms can pay less than this and still have workers. So these frictions, as we call them in the labor market, they give rise to pretty interesting scenarios. For example, it may be the case that firms have certain rules of thumb around what they want to pay workers, and that can actually even lead them to leave money on the table. So some research has shown, for example, that employers seem to prefer to pay wages that are round numbers. That leaves money on the table oftentimes. Or in the case of large employers who operate across multiple states, there's research showing that they seem to prefer to pay workers the same wage for the same job, no matter what state they're in, even if some of their establishments are in low-wage states and some of their establishments are in high-wage states. So if firms care what other large companies do, 
in terms of wages, that can lead to a domino effect of these company-wide policies. And that's the question that's at the core of our project. Is that in fact the case? So could you give us an example of how these minimum wage changes took place in one company, for instance, like Amazon? What exactly happened? So in the case of Amazon, in October of 2018, the company announced that they were going to start paying a minimum wage of $15 an hour for all of their workers. So that includes incumbents, that includes new hires. And this was a pretty shocking revelation in terms of the sector overall. At the time, Jeff Bezos, the CEO of Amazon, made some kind of statement basically saying, look, we've listened to our critics and we're going to take the high road and pay this higher wage and we hope others follow us. So of course, he's going to say something like that to make the company sound great, but it is true. We can see using our job ads data, for example, that Amazon really did start advertising higher wages and shifted wages to a minimum of 15 after this announcement. So in order to test for this domino effect, you rely on quite a heavy empirical work. And one original and fascinating aspect of this work is the data sets you mobilize. So I wanted to ask you what is specific about these data sets and what do they help you capture? So we use data from a variety of sources. Probably our critical data sources are job vacancies data from Burning Glass Technologies. We also use salary reports from a website called Glassdoor, and we use standard public labor market data. But those two data sources I mentioned, what makes them really unique and ideal for addressing the question we're interested in is that first, they have direct measures of actual hourly wages either posted by companies in job advertisements or reported by workers. And second, we know the name of the company that the job ad or the salary report is associated with. And then finally, these data are extremely high frequency, so we can actually pick up month-to-month changes in wages. So combined, these data sources are just far superior compared to, say, publicly available data on labor markets. You can think of you know, BLS data or the American Community Survey or the current population survey. And we cover you know, close to 100,000 firms in these data, and we have millions of job ads and salary reports. So there's just a lot that we can do based on the sheer number of observations. At the same time, I should mention, you know, these data aren't perfect. We don't know, for example, employment counts associated with each job or company because a vacancy, just to give you an example, can say, you know, we're hiring cashiers at this location, but it won't say how many. So for that reason, it's still important to verify any effects, say, on employment. We have to use other data sources, and and in this paper, we use the current population survey. It's also nice to see that effects are consistent across the different data sources. Both Burning Glass and Glassdoor, you know, they're subject to some kind of selection into those data sources. There's no requirement that every worker report their wages at their company and which firms advertise online determines your inclusion in our sample from the job vacancies data. La minute technique. So 
In order to measure the impact of this change in minimum wage at Amazon or Walmart on other firms' minimum wage policy, what is your methodology and what are the assumptions that you have to make? For our empirical strategy, we adopted a classic approach from the minimum wage literature, specifically papers that were concerned with estimating the effect of a national minimum wage change. This literature basically leverages variation in the bite of the national policy across different locations. So different locations may have different prevailing wages and different wage distributions. Therefore, the national policy isn't going to have the same effect in, for example, a high wage state as it would in a low wage state. So we can improve on that fundamental strategy by taking advantage of the high level of detail in our data. And what we do is we calculate this bite or exposure measure at a very fine-grained level. We calculate, for example, take Amazon's $15 an hour announcement from October of 2018, the fraction of job ads that fall below 15 by specific occupational categories, commuting zones, or those are aggregates of U.S. counties, and employer. And our identification assumption then is that this measure of bite or exposure, which we calculate in the months before the announcement, is orthogonal or uncorrelated with trends in wages prior to the policy. And that we can show with our event study graphs and show the estimates for the pre-period where you see no effect. We also directly check for alternative explanations such as mean reversion in the wages of low-wage jobs, state or local minimum wage changes that might be occurring contemporaneously, demand shocks for specific occupations like you know, holiday shopping season and warehouse workers, or changes in an employer's likelihood of even listing a wage on the job ad in the first place. When, for instance, Amazon did implement the increase in minimum wage, what happened? We found an immediate increase in the wages advertised by other employers in the same commuting zones as Amazon in the month of Amazon's announced minimum wage increase. After we net out unrelated changes in wages due to some of the factors I mentioned a moment ago, we find that wages at your average non-Amazon hourly job increased by about 4 to 5% after Amazon's announcement. So one easy way to understand the magnitude of that effect is to compare it to the increase we observe in Amazon's wages after their announcement. Compared to Amazon's increase, wages at non-Amazon jobs increase by about a fifth as much. Or for a 10% increase in Amazon wages, non-Amazon wages in the same commuting zone increased by 2.3%. And you also document changes for wages that are higher than the minimum wage using a bunching approach, right? So could you tell us more about that? Yes, absolutely. And for us, this was actually one of the strongest pieces of evidence that what we were picking up on was firms responding to these large retailer announcements as opposed to some other shock to wages that's happening at the same time. What we see is in the months after 
Amazon or Walmart or Target's minimum wage announcements, other employers tend to advertise wages at exactly the minimum wage announced by the large retailer. So the modal wage by non-Amazon employers after Amazon's announcement is exactly $15 an hour. And this is also the case at different wage levels for the announcements by Walmart, Target, and Costco. And this really suggests to us that these other employers are really trying to mimic the wage policy that was just announced by the large retailer. One recurring discussion about the impact of minimum wage changes is the potential detrimental effect on employment. What do you conclude on this margin in your study? So as I mentioned earlier, we have to turn to a different data source to understand the potential effect of these large retailer announcements on employment. So we turn to the current population survey where we can look at whether or not a worker is employed. One drawback here is that we can't separate out Amazon specifically from the data because this is not a question that's asked by the CPS, you know, who do you actually work for? So the way that we get around that is to just go ahead and exclude the entire industry that Amazon is a part of. In this case, it's electronic shopping as well as grocery stores because Amazon also owns Whole Foods. And what we do is we look at wages and employment in these non-Amazon industries, once again, leveraging variation in bite and comparing wages before and after the policy change. What we find is that for a 10% spillover increase in wages, employment fell by between 0.4 to 1.3% across all of these different large retailer wage policies. So how big is that effect? It's actually a quite small effect. It's comparable to some recent estimates from the minimum wage literature. For example, papers that have looked at state changes in minimum wages in the U.S. over the past few decades, historical U.S. minimum wage policy, or even considering some recent international evidence. So you find that your results do not vary so much according to the labor market tightness how does this result impact how we should think about labor markets in general? So for the large retailers, announcing something like a company-wide minimum wage or an increase in your company-wide minimum wage, taken at face value, that's like wearing your monopsony power on your sleeve. You're basically announcing to the world that you have the power to set your own wages. You know, perhaps these wage announcements reflect some hidden supplier demand conditions that these specific companies are facing. But even then, it's very unlikely that such conditions would add up to exactly $12 an hour or $15 an hour. So once again, that's just at face value, very clear evidence of some of the wage setting power that these large companies have. Now, among the other employers, the evidence that we show, which is that they rapidly adjust their wages in response to these announcements, and they mimic the wage announced by these large retailers, is also evidence of their own wage setting power. And we find this quite significant in the context of the sector that we're looking at, the low wage sector, because that's a sector that's typically considered more competitive. Jobs are similar across occupations or industries. And so it's actually quite striking that all of these employers do exhibit some wage setting power. When we try to understand why these policies propagate, we considered a few different hypotheses, including competitive factors, and those can be present even in labor markets with imperfect competition. 
one factor we consider is labor market tightness or how difficult is it for employers to find workers, which might be proxied for by the local unemployment rate, for example. In imperfectly competitive labor markets, if you have multiple firms that hold some degree of wage setting power and they're competing with each other over workers, this is also known as oligopsony, it's very plausible that spillovers are larger among companies that are in direct competition with that large retailer for certain types of workers. So for example, if Amazon is advertising warehousing jobs specifically, you might imagine that other employers of warehousing workers are more affected, or which is closer to the reality, Amazon tends to hire workers into warehousing from other occupations like retail and service jobs. So when Amazon starts hiring lots of workers in a location, that may place particular pressure on retail and service sector firms. So we evaluated each of these hypotheses in turn and basically found that they don't do a good job of explaining much of the spillover effects that we observe. So where does that leave us? It leaves us with a potentially sizable role for changing wage norms or changes in the heuristic for what wages should be that firms are using in response to these minimum wage announcements by large retailers. Put differently, it does indeed look that as Fight for 15 campaigners argued, large retailers act as standard bearers in the low-wage labor market. I wanted to ask about your personal thoughts on the policy implications of this research and what we should think about in terms of targeted policies on large employers, but more broadly, what you think is left in terms of the research going forward. That's a great question. And I think the question at the research frontier here has shifted from whether or not firms have wage setting power, and that's set the agenda for the past at least decade or so in modern labor economics, to what actually determines how firms set wages. So opening up that black box and figuring out what the determinants are. And we really need a better handle on what firms decide to do with the wage setting power they have and how and why. So if we had a better handle on that, then policymakers could design interventions that are aimed at redistributing some of the rents that firms have enjoyed by having the cards stacked in their favor over the last several decades. Based on our research, it does seem like the actions of just a few large employers in the labor market can have substantial ripple effects. So maybe policies that target large employers specifically, as we saw with you know the social movement, Fight for 15, maybe that can have broader effects and allow policymakers to have broader reach than previously anticipated. So I think that's good news for policymakers. And in general, we just need to understand better why other companies feel compelled to follow in the footsteps of large actors. So before we wrap up, I wanted to ask if you could share a recommendation with us of a book, a movie, or something that inspired you. So one book I highly recommend for anyone interested in the conditions of low-wage work in the U.S. today is a book called On the Clock by Emily Gundelsberger. This book just won the William G. Bowen Book Award that's given out annually by the Industrial Relations Section here at Princeton Econ. And it's basically a modern version of Nickel and Dimed by Barbara Ehrenreich, for listeners who are familiar with that book. That's another book that was highly influential for me. 
So the book by Emily Gundelsberger, who's a journalist, tracks her odyssey working three very common low-wage jobs in America today. She works at an Amazon warehouse, at a McDonald's, and at a call center. And the book basically calls attention to the degree of just basic dehumanization that's present and prevalent in these jobs today, the degree of control over workers and monitoring, and the extent to which you know, fundamental aspects of your job, like information about your schedule, is just taken completely out of workers' hands. So when you read these accounts by Gundelsberger and her conversations with her coworkers, it's just really easy actually to understand the forces, at least some of the forces behind today's great resignation, quote unquote. These jobs are just a grind. And if you can hold out for something better, it's no surprise that people would do that. So I think, you know, in light of this recently very highly publicized labor shortage. This is a book that helps you understand the kind of pressure on employers today to raise the wage to make these jobs, you know, palatable. And it sounds like we're at a crossroads where labor market power, you know, maybe it's becoming more balanced with today's conditions, with the labor market shortage as it stands. And the end result of that, you know, could be something closer to this competitive labor market than what we've seen in the past. Thank you so much, Elora, for sharing this and for talking about your research today with me. Thank you very much. Of course, it was my pleasure. This was Inequality Talks, a podcast recorded by Clémentine Vallée-Fanter in Toronto. I want to thank Clémentine Benoit for editing this episode. Music is by The Count. Thanks for listening and stay tuned for the next episode. <laughs>